and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. And it is hot in here. <laughs> so hopefully we get through this fast. I have a leather chair and I'm wearing like this t-shirt dress. And I got up and I I think I lost the back of my legs. <laughs> How is this some freaky Friday thing going on? Because it is so cold here in North Carolina. We are in the middle of a gale. It has been raining for two days straight. It's likely to rain tomorrow. We will see. I have been so cold. It has been so windy. I feel like I could just crawl under a cocoon of blankets and like sleep for an eternity. I mean, you can just, what is, if you can swap it, it's 80 something in here right now. You know, and I'm I couldn't turn, check. yeah, I couldn't turn a fan on because uh, you'd hear it in the background. Yeah, I think it's like, it's, it says that it's 70 here. I hard don't believe that. Hard don't believe it. It doesn't because feel 70. Like, mm, no, ma'am. <laughs> Feels like low 60s. Yeah. Unless I'm insane now. My, yeah, my optimal temperature is where I, where I thrive is between like 60, 70 degrees Maybe seventy five if I want to, if I want to feel hot. But yeah, yeah, agree. And I think it's you this time, right? That's first. Yeah, I think so. And what I what I have for today, I told you this as I was doing it, but I wrote this from a McDonald's play place so <laughs> as I was looking at this crime and uh, subsequent murders. Kids were running around <laughs> yelling and playing, so I felt a little out of place. <laughs> Very much out of place. <laughs> it's like a murder. Have fun going down the slide. <laughs> watch where you step. Yeah. Don't lick that. Yeah. It's like, wash your hands before you eat anything, please. <laughs> but, um, and this story takes place. In the early 1890s, um, John and Abe Smalley had some big aspirations, and those, unfortunately, included train robbery. So when I think Michigan, I was not thinking train robbery, but apparently it was a thing. We really wanted to take on the whole Wild West persona. Yeah. In, in cold ass Michigan. <laughs> it's just uh, wild west everywhere, apparently. We just didn't know it. John and Abe grew up north of Clare. Not much is known about Abe's early life, but John spent some time working as a lumberer. He was also a boxer who fought in some smaller local fights. Supposedly, they spent some time in the mid-1880s to 1890s robbing from stores and farmhouses, as well as bank and train robberies and cracking safes with dynamite, as one does. As one does. (laughs) This time period, love their dynamite, and I feel like I missed out on the golden age of dynamite purchase, you know? Isn't this like the second story now that you've had involving dynamite? Yeah. Well, and <laughs> you then, have an affinity for dynamite. <laughs> well, and then we could say third if we count your um, 
bath yeah schoolhouse massacre absolutely yeah the bath the bath school massacre absolutely yeah we love dynamite on this podcast <laughs> Uh, Abe was said to be part of the Coffeeville, Kansas bank raid that was a bloody end for the Dalton gang led by brothers and said to be cousins of the James gang. And for context, six men rode in on horseback to rob the town's two banks. However, the town was tipped off. They were coming. So as the men left with their stolen loot, gunfire broke out, killing four members of the gang, as well as the marshal, bank clerk, shoemaker, and shop owner. Abe escaped with a bullet in his back, but survived. John was nicknamed the Whiskered Train Robber, (laughs) which I wouldn't think would make him stand out, since a lot of men had facial hair. Um, Especially back then. Yeah, I I just kind of thought that's like calling him the one with the face. It's not very helpful. You with the face. It's the, Get over here. It was the train robber with the bandana. Well, thank you. That's very helpful. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, totally. John Smalley left the state to commit most of his crimes. You know, don't, don't shit where you eat. You know, you got to take that away from home. Right. Uh, He would come home after he was done to his father's farm or sometimes to McBain to spend time with Cora Brown. She was a woman of ill repute with the kick-ass nickname of the Black Diamond. Spicy. I like it. Right? It's got some flair. It's got a nice touch to it. It isn't known if Cora was John's wife or girlfriend. My personal thought, I'm, I'm guessing paid girlfriend, but that's purely my thoughts. <laughs> because there's no way the Black Diamond settles, you know. <laughs> She's too good for the whiskered train rubber. Too, too good. Right? You can't have that nickname and then settle for the whiskered one. But people would notice John's sudden long absences and returns with suspicious amounts of cash. Cora's second cousin, James Brown, not the singer, <laughs> planned with the Smalleys on a large score that he later confessed to about their robbery and subsequent escape, which is kind of how there's all this information that I can tell you about from the story, because he had the inside knowledge. At the time, trains were one of the main forms of transportation. They would also often carry the cash needed to stock banks. This made them a popular target for thieves and bandits. Their average speed at the time was only about 15 to 20 miles an hour. Which, I mean, I would assume would be fast. (laughs) I I can't run 15 to 20 miles an hour, but horseback, you know. Right. The Smalleys and James Brown, again, not the singer, had been working (laughs) on a string of, of smaller robberies. Uh... They would watch a nearby general store or farm during the day and break in at night. They were getting small takes and wanted a bigger payday. You know, rather than getting a job and having regular paychecks, um, these bums decided (laughs) 
they would just like to steal it instead. They decided that a likely place for that would be 25 miles south of the Michigan border near Kendallville, Indiana. The men hid in a shack near the train tracks where the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Express train would pass as it left the Chicago area. There were extra ties and rails near the tracks, and the three men piled them onto the tracks to block the train and and cause a crash because... Honestly, what the fuck? (laughs) I want to steal from this train. Let's block the track. Um, And Abe used dynamite to blow the lock on the switch box, which set off an alarm that would alert the engineer to hit the brakes. They waited in the shack for the train to get closer. It was scheduled at 9 or 10 p.m., but was running late and arrived just before midnight on September 12, 1893. The men, with their faces covered by handkerchiefs, walked out of the shack with their guns. Shots were fired and the engineer was hit, supposedly by Brown. Then they went to the express car and demanded the guards open the door. They refused and Abe used dynamite to open the door before tossing another into the car. And after it cleared, they went in. So they love their dynamite. A whole lot. Yeah. Like a whole lot. Just use it for everything. It's like, I I need a solution to this problem. Dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The safe they wanted to enter was unsurprisingly locked, and the clerk inside said they couldn't open it. There was another box safe that Abe sent Brown to get a coal hammer from the engine room to try to open, while John stayed outside shooting towards the train to ward off passengers and crew and work to clear an escape path. Between, here we go again with it. Between the coal hammer and three dynamite blasts, they got the safe open <laughs> to get the four stacks of cash. My God, how did they get all this dynamite in I, there? He must have just had quite the collection. Just probably had some stuffed up their rectum or something. Good Lord. Like, we're going to rob this train. I know what we need. 20 sticks of dynamite, just in case. (laughs) The men grabbed the stacks and ran into the woods to hide in the dark. About 30 minutes later, they heard the train start up again and begin to move. They hiked through the woods, having to backtrack to find the handkerchief Abe dropped until daylight. Good going, Abe. Good old Abe. Yep. And when they stopped for breakfast, they counted the cash and found they had stolen $16,000, over $400,000 today. Each man's share was 5000 with the extra 1000 going to Abe when they drew straws, and he won. Apparently, they couldn't split it up any more than that. <laughs> I don't know how to divide by three. Where's my dynamite? <laughs> the men stayed in the woods for weeks to avoid being spotted then they crossed the state line Abe went off never to be heard from again John and Brown went north and hiked for 100 miles until they came to Ionia John bought a suit and a gold watch before he went back to the family farm in Tacora Brown went for a shave and a haircut Uh, (laughs) uh, got a change of clothes and a gold watch for his wife brown then went to his brother-in-law's farm in gilmore and had his wife lena brought to him where he told her everything so apparently he just had some breakdown feeling guilty 
was in his brother-in-law's barn and is like, get my wife. Yeah. Right. Like, I've uh, messed up, but here's $5,000. In 1895, five men stopped a train past Fenville. They stole bags of money and took pocket watches and other items from the crew. The leader was described as having a reddish-colored, thick beard, and they also found pointed-toe shoe prints leading to the woods. Hmm. A man matching the leader's description was spotted in Grand Rapids on Fulton Street some time later. Police were also notified of two suspicious men who bought train tickets going to Reed City. Police were able to meet the train at its next stop, where officers questioned a man in the smoking car. When asked who he was traveling with, the man pointed to a younger man wearing pointed toe shoes. When police asked about his gun or asked if he had one, it wasn't super clear in the book. The man pulled out a forty-four and shot the officer in the cheek before he and the other man fled out the door. The officer that was shot in the face died the next morning before sunup. Oh, jeez. So messed up. Leaflets were sent out, and a break came when they made their way to Cadillac. John Smalley's neighbors talked about how John's reddish beard sounded like the description and his absences were noticed and how he had just returned. Deputy Bert Stafford and Sheriff Gillis McBain got the tips, grabbed their rifles, a small posse of vigilantes, and headed to Cora's house. Apparently following Wild West law, They snuck up on the house as John and some others were sitting talking on the porch. He heard their approach right outside the porch and saw the men with rifles. He shut the door and he and the others went into the house, slamming the door shut. McBain and Stafford then fired into the house and just I'm going to assume for their sake, they announced they were police at some point rather than just sneaking up on the house with guns and firing. But mm, I don't I don't know about that time. <laughs> given given police history, they don't even announce that nowadays. Yeah. Well, part of me is still tempted to be like, but did they have a warrant? Like, it wouldn't <laughs> matter at this period of time. Like. The the laws are not what, you know, what they are now back then. So did they announce themselves? Who knows? John Smalley was hit in the neck and because they weren't sure if he was alive in there or if he fled, they waited an hour before going in where they found John Smalley dead on the floor. Police brought witnesses to confirm John Smalley's identity And the gross part about that is, like, they basically left him there, and apparently it was warm. So by the time they could get something, like, get somebody there to try and identify to make sure, he was already starting to decompose. So. Ew. Gross. (laughs) Like, we. disturbing. They're like, we killed someone. Was it the right guy? (laughs) We don't know. That is disturbing. Good lord. Um, The only one of the crew to face justice 
was not the singer James Brown, who after being found turned over the $1,500 he had left and was taken to Allegan County Jail, where he wrote his confession before he was sent to Indiana to face trial. That's the For story $1, of the... $1,500. Yeah. Well, the, of remaining, of what he had of the original five. But I mean, even back then, 1500 was a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good grief. And that was from that book, um, Am I Bad?, I've mentioned stories from that before. I think the pirate one had some stuff from there. Exactly. So my story today was on Danny and Larry Rains. Danny Arthur Rains, born October 20, 1943. And Larry Lee Rains, born March 22, 1945, were both born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Influenced by their father's parenting style, you could say, the brothers often competed with one another, even fighting over a small amount of change, and were seemingly persuaded to drink by their father as well. Oh, nice. Lovely start to childhood. Mm-hmm. It gets, the story gets weird, it gets gross. It, as I was writing the script, I was yelling. It was... <laughs> It's an interesting time. Oh. Um, and the reason why I was yelling is actually coming up. So, in 1954, their dad abandoned them all and moved to Florida, where he got a new lady in his life and a new job as a gas station attendant. In 1958, 13-year-old Larry met 23-year-old Sue. I don't like where this is going. Nope, I yelled. Who was a neighbor and a single mother of three children. Right. I'm just like, ick. (laughs) You. Very much that. I'm disturbed. Yeah. Over the next few years, he would spend as much time as possible with her and even helped her with raising her children. At 13, she was 23. Ew. Bitch, get your life together, because that's disgusting. Yeah. Which then led them to become intimate. Ew. Ew, like, lady, what the fuck's wrong with you, man? A 13-year-old boy? You gotta have a little boy help you raise your children? Yeah. What is wrong with you? I just, like... I'm 38. I even look at a 20, 28-year-old, and I'm like, ew, <laughs> you're a baby. <laughs> like, even at 23, I would have never no, even looked at a young, like, a teen at all. No. Like, at 23, I would have been like, ew, a child? Gross. Go away. Yeah. Like, go to recess. <laughs> Leave me alone. Go kick the ball at home. Like, what are you doing? Or you're going. Like, what? Oh, my God. During the early 60s, the brothers both started dating Kathy. Mm Mm-hmm. What? Both. (laughs) Correct. They both started dating Kathy. A girl from their school. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. But, of course, dating two different women 
was a bit much for Larry. <laughs> and his grades took a nosedive. And that's where he decided to drop out of school in 10th grade and turn to crime. Of, of course, that's the next logical step. Crime. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in 1962, Larry and a friend of his decided to steal a car and were both apprehended quite quickly. The DA's office made a deal with Larry that they would rescind his sentence if he enlisted in the army. And he accepted these terms. Joining wasn't the best idea, though. Um, as shortly after enlisting, he had to be disciplined multiple times for misconduct and chronic alcoholism. Hmm. So, wonder who you know, he got all that business from. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> wonder where that came from. <laughs> Pulling things out of a hat. Let's see. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. During all of this, Danny married Kathy and they went on to have two children together. In 1963, Larry assaulted a colleague while wasted, which caused him to be kicked out of the military and caused his return to Kalamazoo. At this point, he begged Sue to marry him on multiple occasions, and after her many refusals, he tried to commit suicide on December 23, 1963, by trying to suffocate himself by breathing in exhaust fumes of his 1958 Plymouth Plaza. Oh, that. I think it's Plaza. Piazza Plaza, yeah. I wonder if he was a teenager, if she would have married him. <laughs> Dark I'm humor. sorry, you're too old for me now. Dark humor shouldn't, <laughs> but it makes me giggle. <laughs> um, not funny, but funny. <laughs> Um, but of course, an officer ended up saving him and brought him to the Kalamazoo Regional Psychiatric Hospital, which is where he stayed for the next 10 days. Now, on May 30th of 1964, Larry pretended to be a hitchhiker and was able to get 30-year-old Gary Albert Smock, a teacher from Plymouth, who was passing through Kazoo, to give him a ride. We all see where this is going, folks. Not a good idea. Rutro shaggy. During this ride, Larry pulled out a weapon. That's all I saw. But one can assume it was likely a gun or a knife. And he forced Gary into the trunk where he locked him in. Gary did try to get out of the trunk during the rest of the trip, which caused Larry to stop the car and tie him up. Then... He shot him twice in the back of the head. Oof. Yikes. Larry then stole three dollars. Big money. And other items from the vehicle before leaving it on the side of the road, where it was found just a few hours later by an officer. Over the next few months, Larry liked to spill the beans about the, the murder to a number of people which caused his arrest on June 5th, 1964, in the early morning, uh, right out in front of a friend's home. Hmm. So, like, he really enjoyed just blabbing it all, like, thinking, nobody didn't say anything? Like, for real, dude? Bruh. 
he went willingly with the officers and admitted to killing Gary right away. And he also had incriminating evidence on him, such as a watch and shoes that ended up being later identified by family and friends of Gary. Oh, jeez. After being taken to the, to the station, Larry told officers that he killed four others during holdups at different gas stations. Jeez. He had confessed to the May 30th murder of 33-year-old Charles E. Snyder in Elkhart, Indiana, the killing of an Air Force serviceman in Pawpaw, Michigan, the slaying of a man in Las Vegas, Nevada, and also another man in Kentucky. Jeez, he was all over the place. All over the place. Larry was unable, or unwilling, to name three of the victims, but investigators suspected that one of them might have been 21-year-old Vernon Leben, Lebeni, Leben. Sorry if I get this incorrect. Who was a serviceman from Southfield, Michigan? Vernon was shot while working at a gas station near Battle Creek on April sixth, nineteen sixty-four, just the day, or I would say just the day before he was to be married. No. Oh. Poor guy. Sad. Terrible. Ter just absolutely terrible. According to Larry, he committed all of the murders with motives for robbery. And after eating and drinking all of the food and alcohol, he had every intention of apparently committing suicide, but just never went through with it. Mm. Sure, guy. Sure, I believe that. We. Oui. Larry Raines was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, which stated that he was, in fact, insane. Which... I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> not, not sure. surprising. Insane or drunk, who knows yeah. at this point. Um, le uh, the examining doctors came to the conclusion that the, psycholog the psychological trauma caused by his father caused him to have a subconscious hatred towards gas stations as they reminded him of his father. <laughs> what? Okay, sure, okay. that's it. It has nothing to do with him just finding something easy since he's obviously traveling. Yeah. I roll. No. I hate gas stations. Subconsciously, I just hate all <laughs> gas stations. They remind me of my dad who left to go work in one. Yeah. What? <laughs> okay. Makes sense. Right. Larry Lee Rain's trial began on September 29th, 1964. And on October 8th, a jury found him guilty of the murder of Gary Smock, of course. I mean, he admitted to it, like, 50 different ways. Like, come on. Yeah, he told everybody. And then he... <laughs> he told everybody. And then he told the police. So. And then he admitted to more. Like, come on, it's kind of obvious at this point. Yeah. And on, and on October 23rd, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Good. After Larry's conviction... Danny Rains began to argue quite frequently with his wife, Kathy, as well as demonstrating a worsening in his sexual behaviors, if you will. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that. In November of 1968, Danny assaulted 18-year-old Dorothy King in Battle Creek by holding her at gunpoint. He tried to drive to the outskirts of town so that he could rape her, 
but Dorothy, luckily, was able to get away when he took the wrong turn near Kellogg Community College, which Danny then threw away his gun and fled. Danny's car, though, was found in the parking lot of the pharmacy where Dorothy worked and was attacked. Like, you were driving. Why did you bring it back? That doesn't... Are you daft? That doesn't make sense. They'll never find it here. (laughs) Exactly. And after being identified by her, he was arrested. Ding, ding, ding. On February 4th of 1969... Danny Rains was found guilty of the felonious assault of Dorothy King, and on April 15th, he was sentenced to four years in prison. During his stay in prison, Kathy divorced Danny, and on February 17th of 1972, he was granted parole and returned to where uh, returned back to Kalamazoo, where he got a job as a, can you guess it? Gas station station operator. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That family is Uh, just obsessed with gas stations. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Precisely. At this time, Danny met 15-year-old transient Brent Eugene Coster, who was a local kid with a troubled family life due to his mother's schizophrenia and his father's alcoholism. After meeting Brent, Danny gave him shelter in one of his girlfriend's trailers one of his girlfriend's trailers, right? And found him a job. With zero other role models in his life, and given his young age, along with Danny helping him, Brent would unfortunately later go on to become an accomplice to Danny. Oh. Yeah. That. On July 5th of 1972, Danny and Brent raped and killed Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup, 19-year-old girls from Chicago, at a gas station near I-94, where Danny was working at at the time. After murdering the girls, Danny and Brent wrapped the women's bodies in in a blanket and placed them in the back of their car. Brent then drove the car to a wooded area near Galesburg and set it on fire to remove possible evidence. Linda and Claudia's remains were found a whole 14 days later by a motorcyclist who was passing by. On August 5th, while driving by WMU, Western Michigan University, Danny and Brent picked up Pamela Fierno. I'm going to say Fierno because I don't think it's pronounced Fiernow. So I'll say Fierno if I get it wrong. I apologize. And and she was an 18-year-old hitchhiker. While threatening Pamela with a knife, they took her to the woodlands that are surrounding Morrow Lake near Comstock Township. And that is where they raped her repeatedly, and then Danny ended up strangling her with a plastic bag. In September, against Danny's instructions, Brent told several sex workers about his guilt in the murders. Um... And one of those sex workers ended up being an informant for the police. Oh, nice. Smart move, guy. Um, Brent was arrested that very evening on September 5th, 1972. And while being interrogated, he willingly admitted his guilt and implicated Danny Raines, who was then arrested that that, uh, same night. Also during his interrogation, Brent stated that Danny had confided in him that on March 19, he had kidnapped, raped, and killed 28-year-old 
Patricia Hauk. Due to Bren's testimony and other incriminating evidence, Danny Arthur Raines was charged with the four murders on October of 1972, or in October of 1972. At Danny's trial, Brent Coster acted as a key witness for the prosecution. Danny was found guilty of first-degree murder and the death of Pamela Fierno, and second-degree murder and the death of Patricia Hauk, and was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole on August 9, 1973. Danny then went to plead um, no contest to the second-degree murder of, of Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup and ended up getting two additional life terms in that case. As part of his plea deal, Brent Coster was charged with second-degree murder for the Clark case in which he pled guilty. On July 21st of 1975, Brent was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. Correct. The judge told Brent that he deserved to die in prison and that people like him were why some people wanted capital punishment to be brought back to Michigan. Damn. Ouch. Judge isn't wrong. <laughs> Correct. Judge is not wrong on that. <laughs> it's not wrong. Um, in the aftermath of it all, after their conviction, the Raines brothers have been kept in various penitentiary institutions across Michigan. Um, in the early 70s, after Danny's conviction, Larry officially changed his name to Monk Steppenwolf. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. In reference to the, the protagonist of the novel Steppenwolf by the German-Swiss author Hermann Hess, which... He had read in uh, 67. So he just call me Monk Steppenwolf. Uh, uh, odd choice. What? <laughs> right. Odd, odd choice. While imprisoned, he kept in contact with his brother Danny's ex-wife, Kathy. You know, the 23-year-old that sleeps with children. Yeah, that one. Um. Well, I thought that. She, well, I thought Kathy was the uh, the one they both dated as teenagers. Am I? Oh no, no, no. Was you're Sue? Right. Sue was the twenty-three-year-old. Yeah, Sue, Sue was the twenty-three-year-old. <laughs> See, you're correct. That got me confused for a minute there. There's too many women in this. Well, like, messes with me. Not Kathy. You seem like, semi-normal. Kathy, you divorced no, yes. your creepy husband, and you still speak to his brother. Right. Well, beyond that. <clears throat> she ended up marrying him on March 22nd, 1976. <laughs> his 31st birthday while in prison. She's like, you know, I'm lonely. I'm going to switch brothers. I'm going to marry another brother. Yeah. They're both in prison. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like what the one did, but you killed a man. You're okay. Right. <laughs> what the fuck? In August. <laughs> oh, Kathy. In August of 1986, Larry was visited by journalists uh, for an interview in which he spoke about being visited by his mother, sister, and another wo woman who he had said he had been in a relationship with for three years. Apparently there's many women. I don't understand it because I have seen their mugshots. Highly debatable. I, I, Hi uh, I don't understand that mm. either. <laughs> 
I'm hard questioning that because how? I don't, I don't know. Right. That. They can't escape you in there, I suppose. <laughs> you know where they are at all times. Mm-hmm. He talked about his brother, Danny, stating that they had not spoken to one another since the late 60s. He claimed that due to the severity of his brother's crimes, the family name became a personification of evil and a main reason why he legally changed his name, which is insane because his crimes are like also evil. Yeah. And he killed more people, suppose, like are around the same amount. Like first, like what is going on? Like, like, you think his murders are worse than your murders? Yeah. Like, I'm so confused. Murdering men is fine. Raping and women. <laughs> Raping and murdering uh, women. No. Uh, they got I'm, that moral code, you know? Like, way to try to shift blame there, dipshit. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> For real. Larry also claimed to have made several unsuccessful attempts to commit suicide by hanging and by ingesting paint thinner. And gelatin capsules. All of which occurred apparently in the mid-60s. In the early 70s, he took up bodybuilding, but at one point stopped playing sports and refused to eat for 29 days, nearly dying from cachexia? I am not a doctor. I don't know. (laughs) C-A-C-H-E-X-I-A. Cachexia, cachexia. Yeah. Not a professional. No. Sorry, guys. (laughs) I know about hair, skin, and nails. I do not know (laughs) further than that. Um, He also stated that while serving his sentence, he earned a living through usury and social activities, sewing slippers and drawing. During the interview, Larry stated that he had read many books filling his educational gaps and developing his eloquence mm-hmm. for which he gained a reputation amongst other in- inmates as a skilled manipulator manipulators right yeah skilled that's debatable because that's something <laughs> to look up to you know you're good at manipulation <laughs> how do you do this how do you trick people like, what a douche canoe. Yeah. Like, that's what you're excited about. And you want to tell everybody, I'm great at manipulating. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, that's some shit you keep to yourself. Like, <laughs> 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 precisely. Oh, my gosh. According to his claims, during his 22 years in prison, he had a total of four affairs with four different women, two of which began while in prison. I, I can do nothing but shake my head at that one. <laughs> right, right. In the late 70s, he faced disciplinary action after prison officials intercepted a conspiracy by eight inmates to kill another prisoner with a homemade crossbow, which was designed <laughs> by Larry. <laughs> a crossbow in prison. Mm-hmm. Designed by Larry, right? A homemade homemade crossbow. Mm-hmm. Of all things. It's like the dynamite. Like what? Yeah. Like why? Why, why that? 
Additionally, Larry revealed that corruption was rampant in the prison, due to which he and a number of other inmates used this to gain access to marijuana. All right. You're just, like, telling on yourself. It's how you get that taken away, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Dumbass. As of January uh, 2022, the 76-year-old Larry Rains was alive and still serving his sentence in the Saginaw Correctional Facility. His brother Danny Rains died of natural causes at Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater, Michigan on January 29, 2022. He was 78 years old. Danny's accomplice, Brent Coster, underwent many sex offender rehabilitation programs Earned a law degree. The fact that you can earn that in prison is astonishing. Yeah. And it probably cost them nothing because, you know, prison must be nice to not have to pay for education. <laughs> After killing people. I'm not, I'm not salty. I don't want to, like, actually wrap my hands around their throat right now. <laughs> yeah. You like to sexually assault women and murder them. Um, we're going to rehabilitate so you in here. Why don't you learn some law? Yeah, let's like give you a fancy education for free, buddy. Yeah. Well, the the fact that they're teaching him law was that just so he can manipulate the system the next time he does something. Funny how you say that. How to get away with murder. (laughs) Right. Precisely. And was apparently an exemplary prisoner, according to the prison officials who nonetheless had his parole applications consistently denied. That is, until September of 2020, at yet another parole hearing, the commission decided to take into account his apparent remorse for the crimes and his young age when he committed them, and finally approved his application, as he was considered unlikely to reoffend. Sure. <laughs> mm, yeah. After spending 48 years in prison, the 64-year-old Brent Coster was released from the G. Robert Cotton Correctional Facility on January 21st, 2021. He will be fully discharged from his sentence on January 21st, 2025. <laughs> that. <laughs> that. Yeah, the screeching... Internally, and a little bit out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. At his final parole hearing, Brent Coster admitted there was no doubt that he deserved to spend the rest of his life in prison, agreeing with what the judge told him during his initial sentencing hearing nearly 50 years ago. Then, if you deserved it, why did you get out, bro? Why did you keep putting in requests to leave if you knew you deserved to stay? Bitch, stay. You know, weirdly, I think a lot of this had to do with COVID and overcrowding and the uh, the Michigan state government was pushing people to get out. Correct. So the, I'm guessing that had something to Hard do with agree. that. Yeah. Hard agree. Hard agree. However, he said he wanted a chance to contribute to society as a free citizen. Yeah, I'm so sure. You gonna go work at a gas station? I don't... <laughs> I don't believe him, though, (laughs) but that was funny. (laughs) 
He said, I would like to be given the opportunity to serve the rest of my remaining days in a free community rather than die in prison. I realize what I did. I realize that it is horribly wrong. But there are circumstances that got me involved in this. And one of them is, I mean, I know it's rare form to blame the co-defendant. But I was, well, shall we say, under the influence. I know what I did. I accept responsibility for that. But if it were not for my co-defendant, I would not be sitting here. Okay. You can't make your Grant own choices. <laughs> you know? Correct. Like, you, you knew right from wrong at that point. Yeah. Like, you can pretend, but you knew. Brent gave a full admission of guilt. He said that Danny had told him to assist him in strangling Linda, Clark, and Claudia Bidstrup with rope. He also admitted that while Danny assisted him with killing Claudia, he killed Linda all by himself. But just really sad. Just really sad, because, you know... I'm not angry. (laughs) I was hesitant, he says, but I'm knee deep into this crime. Brent Coster expressed remorse for the murders, saying, it must have been horrible. I know that. I can't even begin to realize the pain and suffering that they went through. The only thing I can compare it to is when I lost my father and mother and the pain and hurt that I went through but I can imagine it would nowhere compare to what the families went through. Like, I'm so mad. Like, you you would even dare. Yeah, just, mm. and just, I'm just internally screaming for this whole thing. Angry fists. <laughs> Angry fists right now. Angry fists. Banshee screams going on in my head right now. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. A prison legal service supervisor for Brent Coster and a prison legal service volunteer said she believed Brent was remorseful and ashamed of his participation in the murders. While acknowledging the horrific nature of his crimes, Jacqueline McKinnon said, but he is an adult now. He is not a 15-year-old. I have not seen any evidence whatsoever in the 19 years that I have known him that he is impulsive or a predator or anything, but responsible and contrite and remorseful for his crimes. Sure. Because he wants to be out. Like, the fuck? <sighs> A deep sigh. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, I will say, there are instances where it's like, okay, somebody, heat of the moment, something happened, somebody died, maybe they're not going to do that ever again. But somebody, even if they're a teenager, if it goes to rape and murder. And planning it out. That's the kind of thing that I don't think people can come back from or should be able to come back from burning evidence and vehicles and burying bodies and yeah multiple people at that yeah absolutely not yeah that wasn't a heat of the moment something happened you lost control self-defense gone wrong kind of thing that was a no yeah nope nope, evil crime that was committed correct I will say that there was a book released in 2016 written by Conrad Hilberry and Emmanuel Tanya called Luke Karamazov. I am butchering this. Sorry. Um, Which was based on the crimes of Larry and Danny Raines. There is also a film called He Went That Way 
premiering with the Tribeca Film Festival this year. Actually, like, next month, apparently. I looked it up. Oh, wow. Something like June 6th. So, like, soon. Um, being directed by Jeffrey, Jeffrey Darling, and it is inspired by the novel and based on the real-life account of celebrity trainer Dave Pitts, who was a sole survivor of Larry's murder spree. Apparently. Oh, wow. Um, the cast includes Zachary Quinta, Quinto and Patrick J. Adams. Huh. So that's interesting. But, yeah. Yikes on bikes. That whole one is like... Yeah. And yeah, sorry, I definitely got the girls mixed up because there's apparently so many of them. Supposedly. Supposedly. Yeah. You know what that second story was missing? Mm-hmm. Dynamite. It <laughs> <laughs> uh. definitely needed some dynamite in there. They could have used it on the car instead of burning it. Yeah, they could have used some extra pizzazz. Just a little dynamite. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, that is it for tonight, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Be careful out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.